By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to Moody's Talks, KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. A quick disclaimer. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. The global anti-money laundering system is a failed experiment, writes an author from a piece in The Conversation. The author penned this in late 2019. However, if you fast forward to current day and if you ask around, particularly in an off-the-record capacity, you'll find that many actually agree and that the status quo hasn't worked and its continuation isn't going to when it comes to AML. What's wrong with AML is too big a topic for me to really wrap my own mind around. I'm constantly trying to learn more about what we can do better, but I don't think it's for me to make my best guess and, and put that out to this audience. I do hope, though, that with the right guest, I can ask some of the right questions. With that, today's guest is Carl Kamara, and he brings a real weight of experience after 20 years as an AML practitioner in international banking, plus six years now looking to solve the challenges of KYC and AML from a regtech vendor perspective. Most recently, he's doing this from his role as Senior Product Manager at Nice Actimize. So, Carl, it's been a while. But we've made it. We're in New York. We're in the recording studio. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Looking forward to this conversation. And thank you for uh, having me on this uh, podcast. Yeah, no, you're, you're very welcome. And I think it's what was really nice to me is this is one of the conversations we're, we're now having where you've heard the podcast, reached out, got in touch. Yep. And then we just had a call, right? You know, well, online because it was via Zoom, but not on the podcast. And we got chatting just to sort of see what ideas you might have. and. The thing I remember is you had such a clarity and force in terms of some of the trends you'd seen, how you saw them and the view, view you had that I was like, okay, yeah, we, we definitely need to do an episode. And I didn't want to, I prefer to do them in person. I think you get, we create better content when we do that. It's not always possible yep. due to geographies, but I knew I would be in New York at some stage and given. So here we are. Yeah. Given your proximity, I was like, fantastic. We'll, we'll do this one in person. So it's been a, a while in the making, but we're here. I wondered just to just to start off a ten, although it's a fairly big one. Could you summarize sort of your thesis on where the AML industry stands today? Where I yeah, it's it's a very complicated. It's a very easy question, but it's a complicated answer. Mm. Having been kind of a KYC historian, so I've been around, fortunately or unfortunately, as long as uh, KYC has been a kind <laughs> of formalized uh, industry since around two thousand two thousand one. Um, I I think. When I first started, the idea was uh, you wanted to prove somebody is who they say they are. And so anytime you saw somebody or you, you, know, you dealt with them as a client, you tried to get a representation of who they are, a rendering of them so your internal systems reflect as much as possible as the, the external real person that you're dealing with. Yeah. And I think the, the added thing that's come to bearing is now the industry has grown so much in the last 23 years or 20 years is that now it's more of a digital persona as well as 
what's represented inside a financial institution and making sure all the transactions go through that should go through, helping the human on the other end. But now you have this netherworld of a virtual digital person yeah. um, that just complicates it. So no longer it's a one-to-one match of here's an external human, here's your representation internally. Now there's so many different digital versions of that same person. It really, really complicates things. So yeah. I think there are a lot of moving parts and it was already complicated and complex just inherently as banks are organized and how money flows around the world. Um, I think now um, it's time to simplify is, is, is probably the, the, the best approach to say, how can we simplify this so we can solve the problems that seem to be so prevalent and not being solved? For those people that maybe are slightly newer to the industry or, or have never really looked into AML and have stumbled across this podcast, what would you say those problems are? Well, one is defining KYC, AML. Um, and, and I think I, I start with when you deal with a customer, you're actually dealing with legally a legal person. Mm. And this is where when I started 20 years ago, uh, it's a corporate. I'm like, no, actually, it's a real legal person. And then you start unraveling. It's like, well, corporates are actually legal persons. And as I've learned over time as a historian, they have certain rights. So unbelievably like, well, okay, you're onboarding a corporate, but they actually have rights here in the United States. And in other words too. So it's, it's a little bit of AML, KYC, defining what that is. And then corporates are different than humans. So humans are persons as well. And, and I don't know where I read it. I, I read it last year somewhere mm-hmm. where the biggest challenge is that humans are real and you have to take care of them. They, that's what everybody wants to sell to. So humans make decisions where corporations are, aren't. Yeah. So, so you can put a human in jail, but you can't put a corporation in jail. No. So there, that's where you, things start going sideways. Well, distinguish between agency and accountability and it goes into what we're doing today with UBOs. You know, you can't put a corporation in jail, but you want to hold UBOs, people behind the corporations, and say, like, we're going to hold you accountable for all the damage you've done. Mm. So it kind of ties into that whole nutshell of human. And, you know, when you talk about KYC and AML, proving who you are, there's a difference. So a corporation can be born today and start transacting next week. Mm. A human is born today. They're not going to be able to transact for a number, number of years. Yeah. Right. So the idea is there's a lot of differences and that's where defining the differences between corporates and, and humans, if you will, and we'll get into this probably later. Now we're starting to see in the industry where KYC was defined as both individuals and corporates. And I've always known that they were separate. But now you're starting to see businesses and solutions focused on just KYB, but there's, there's no KYI or KYH, but there is, you know, KYC. And now people, you're starting to see the evolution of people are just focused on businesses and saying KYB. Yeah. The H and the I would be human or individual. Human. Okay. Got it. So we're saying there's a, if I summarize sort of what I've heard, there's the gap between where the financial industry has gone in terms of serving their clients digitally and not meeting them. And there's this gap between that and what originally was intended with KYC and trying to create a digital version. There's not a common set of definitions that we use across the industry, which means it's hard for everyone to be doing the same thing or the right right things consistently might be a better way to say it. 
And when you start treating legal entities or legal persons with similar or sort of rights, at least like natural persons, is then what do we do with that? And how do we create the right market design that says, hey, we've got the right incentives for people to do the right things and the, the right sticks to correct make sure they're not incentivized to go the, uh, the wrong way. Okay, well, let's dig a little bit into some of the parts of what I've referred to as the AML ecosystem. If you think about the different stakeholders in it, which top of my head, you've got the, you've got the governments, which would include the regulators, enforcement agencies as well. You've got the, you know, the private sector, the, the businesses that are under the regulation. And then you've got the vendor market who tries to serve them with, with tools. And I think you could probably argue you've got the actual end uh, humans, <laughs> the individuals they're trying to serve as well. Yep. How do, how do those different parties interact around AML today? How, how would you break that down for somebody new to the industry? I don't know if this is just the way it's been marketed all the time, but I always felt it was a little bit strange that it's called KYC went to client onboarding and then it kind of evolved to client lifecycle management or client mm. lifecycle risk management. And I always felt it was kind of odd that you would say, well, you don't exist until I onboard you. Mm. So I think you want to be involved from a banking perspective in AML. You want to be involved throughout somebody's life, whether that's a corporate life or that's an individual life. And you should look for events. So I, I always viewed it as, and over time, you look at it and it seems to be backwards. So talk about all the people that are vulnerable. Mm. Um, don't have documentation for whatever reason, they're vulnerable. And these are the people that end up in human trafficking, you know, sex trafficking and situations where they're taken advantage of. And it's simply because they don't have verifi- verifiable, they don't have legal owner, they don't have legal standing. Yeah. And, and therefore they don't have the means to participate in the legitimate economy and look after Co- themselves. Correct. So, you know, it's, you know, when you talk about financial inclusion, I know I'm again going all over the place here on the it's conversation, okay. but from an AML perspective, how do the actors behave? A lot of time, everybody just says banks are terrible at this. And I think banks unfairly get attributed to a lot of different things just because they offer financial services. They have the responsibility. If you understand banking, one of their things is that they create money through offering of loans. Mm. So if you can't get a bank account, you don't get a loan. Mm. So therefore you're excluded from the financial system. So we've got individuals who want to most or let's assume the vast majority want to uh, participate in legitimate economic activity they want to interact with banks so that they can access financial services so they can do that documentation and legal standing can sometimes prevent that you've got banks let's just say the private sector because it's not always banks but financial institutions of some sort that want to interact with people because that's how they run a business that's how they make money that's how the also, the good that they do is providing legitimate uh, finance and, and bringing cash into our, into our uh, what do we call it, the uh, fractional reserve banking system? Correct. How do the, as I say, the government side, the, the public sector and the vendor space interact with this in terms of AML? So the, um, I, I think the, the government sides, uh, again, there are you know, jurisdictional places all, all, all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. So even in the US, we have... I, probably more than, I don't know how many regulators, right? And so that adds to the complexity of, I always said, the, the complexity of KYC AML is multidimensional. It's by jurisdiction, by client type, human, corporate, 
bank because banks are unique because they have a banking license. Uh, MBFI, so non-banking financial services, mm-hmm. um, asset managers, hedge funds. So that complexity along with the asset types. So the jurisdiction, the client type, and the different assets, they all have unique characteristics that need to be managed. So that's what makes that inherently complicated. In the way the banks are structured, they are regulated locally, right? There's no global regulator overseeing everything. This So everybody's responsible for their currency or their access to the banking system. So that interaction is they want to obviously encourage economic activity. And so they want to set, you know, I, I don't know if it's principle-based or rules-based or even risk-based approach, right? There's a lot of debate about what that is. So the regulator said, here are the guardrails from which you guys need to operate. Yeah. Yeah. And legacy banks, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, the, we have a, you know, the George Washington bridge, if it's falling down, you know, people still need to use the George Washington bridge, but you have to fix it. Yeah. yeah. So you, you can't just take it away. So same thing with the, the interactions with reg tech and, and fintech companies is that, you know, banks still need to operate every single day. So when they say, oh, it takes so long to change something, well, there's a reason. It's because you just can't say, hey, guys, we're closed for a whole year. When we fix everything and put in this new solution, we'll open back up. That's yeah. just not, it's just not how it works. So, and the, and the reg tech companies, most of them that are growing start as a point solution. Yeah. So you, you can't boil the ocean from the beginning. So you have to pick and choose what specific problem you're going to solve for yeah. perhaps a specific Dimension of jurisdiction, client type, and asset class. Sure. So you've got regulators quite fragmented around the world and sometimes even fragmented within a particular country. Naturally so, yes. And they're trying to set the rules of the game that encourage economic activity between the customers and the financial institutions of various types. And then we've got the vendors looking at how they try to play both to the letter and spirit of these laws and regulations. But as you say, most will start by trying to solve one piece because yeah, we're, we're constantly building and rebuilding the bridge while we're driving across it because we have to, we, we can't just stop. I mean, maybe, a, maybe a better question I could have asked first before I talked about the interaction of the stakeholders is you know, how do practitioners, just the people in banks, financial institutions, how do they actually tackle AML today? Like what are the building blocks of you know, trying to genuinely detect, disrupt, prevent money laundering? How would you break that down in the simplest terms? I got to think about that one. But I I mean, in a traditional sense, you have two different types of people dealing with AML or putting lumping in KYC and AML kind of together and fraud for for that matter. Okay. You know, traditional banks, the pillars are you have a first line of defense and second line of defense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And third, which is the independent auditors within the organization. So as it's presented, which I think is a myth is, oh, this is a cost center. People say, Hey, we want to take a risk-based approach to manage our compliance risks as best as possible while allowing the most economic activity without allowing too many bad actors in the door, right? So it's a little bit of a negative uh, mindset, yeah. but at the same time, it, again, it comes down to, we talked about this before coming up the elevator, it's about the culture of an organization. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's that goal of... Or maybe the, as you say, the tone of the goal might not be right, but hey, look, we, we want to comply. We want to do this. We're going to have 
first line of defense, which maybe you could talk about in a sec in terms of like what things are they doing? And then you've got a second line who's trying to, yeah, if they if something breaks through, I assume you're going to deal with it. And then you've got a third line that's outside your organization typically, or or even internal audit to a certain extent. But um, so if you're in the first line, first line, like what things are you doing? So you talked about KYC being part of AML, but like, so what, what does that look like? They're checking the documentation you've talked about. What happens next? <laughs> well, I, you know, if, if, if I can jump ahead of, yeah. of saying, you know, o- over time, what I've learned um, going through and, you know, if anybody looks at my profile, you'll see um, I've had a bright spotlight from multiple regulators <laughs> shining on what we were doing. I mean, at one point in time, we were, our KYC AML programmers were being reviewed six times a year, right? Over two or three years. It was, mm-hmm. is you get done with an audit and some, someone else comes in and say, we want to review your program. And we just say, can't you just go look at the notes from this last one? So what, what I've learned is when you're first, you wanted to have it as an opportunity to do client engagement, right? So the idea that the good people in the sales understood the, the regulations and they use an opportunity to speak to the customer and saying, this is the information we need from you. Yeah. And you use an opportunity to understand what their needs are, what the purpose of the financing. It wasn't just like, hey, compliance says I need to get this. Yeah. So um, the good ones do it in a way that they, they phrase it in such a way that it's positive. It's a positive experience. But it's also an exchange information because a lot of times the front office, you have to get information from the client. They might need to sign terms and conditions, account agreements, whatever. So the idea is it's not onboarding. It's actually an exchange of information. Yeah. So there's that initial exchange of information. There's uh, some signatures, typically or T's and C's, et cetera. Yep. You then got, you know, we, we on a previous conversation there, I talked a bit about screening. You've got the, the what's going on with sort of the due, the due diligence part of, of AML. As it stands there, we're going to get on to like how that should change. Uh, so we're, we're, we get to see, uh, I've gotten to see a lot of different programs doing it different ways. Astoundingly, there are still financial institutions that I've seen here in the US that still do stuff on paper and Excel via email. Oh dear. And you, yeah. I, I'm not judgmental. I'm just like, okay, this is an opportunity for you to improve. I don't yeah. know why you're still doing it this way, but there's got to be a reason, right? Usually the reason is there's a, there's a fire that's burning hotter and brighter somewhere else. Mm. And you just said, it's not as risky. So we'll get to you later. Mm. Um, and you know, maybe the papers and emails and Excel that works, but it, it is all about how you, again, we talked about this, the people, the process uh, and, and the platforms. So what you can invest either humans or, yeah. or people, but the idea is you know, got to identify who you're dealing business with. You got to do perform due diligence to verify who they are. Yeah. You need to screen the people for PEPs, sanctions, adverse media, maybe yeah. something lower on the retail level. Um, if you have documentation requirements, you need to have what documents do I need? Yeah. And they have to fo- they have to follow certain standards. Yeah. So, hey, I need to get an audited statement. Well, I have an unaudited statement from 10 years ago. Yeah. Mm, no, you need something a little bit more recent that says it's audited. Yeah. So there are certain standards that you need to follow. And um, yeah, from the from the front office and even from an AML perspective, you know, your connection between your first line of defense and your second line of defense, hopefully that they're well aligned. So that they can support the business, but you know they they can also detect something that's an issue, yeah. and raise it and prevent something bad from happening. Yeah. And and we talked about that detection. So we've talked about the due diligence. You've then got your current world of sort of transaction monitoring, right? Yep. What what are people doing with transaction monitoring? Like, or what are they trying to do with it today? Again, I'm sort of trying to make sure we've 
set out the scene here before we start saying what should we change in AML. If we can sort of explain the current state to someone who maybe isn't as familiar, um, and then and then I said we'll, we'll get on to sort of change we can make. So was we've done the onboarding, we've got the due diligence, we've got the paperwork. They're now a, a customer, and we're looking at their transactions. What what does a classic transaction monitoring system do for a, a bank? Right. The, so the the idea is this is the you know under, under the CDD rule from 2018 is you need to monitor your customer's behavior, which is their transactions. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the idea is transaction volumes are much different from a KYC, you know, entity level. So the volumes, whether it's volumes or values, you know, high volumes, low values or low value, low volumes and high values, again, it behaves a little bit differently. So your systems have to account for that. And it, and it all right now, there is a large push into your transaction monitoring generates a certain number of alerts, mm. right? And those alerts need to be disposed of, need to be looked at, and those things that require suspicious activity reports to be filed, whether that's here in the U.S. or in multiple jurisdictions, those systems are enhanced by identity resolution solutions, um, by machine learning and artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. network analytics. And it's really getting, I think it's at an inflection point where um, the talent and knowledge and skill uh, is now being invested in those solutions and also those people to run those solutions to come up with the benefits that people have been proposing for the last several years. So um, yes, we have a Ferrari engine is if I can use an analogy. (laughs) Um, I think you can't put a Ferrari engine in a, you know, an Amish horse and buggy. (laughs) It just won't perform as well. So for those people that are doing onboarding and KYC with paper and Excel, an email, probably identity resolution, machine learning, and AI is not going to help you very much. Okay. So I think you're almost jumping ahead of me, Carl. So it, we've got the current state. People want to interact with banks. They can participate in economic activity and look after themselves. The banks, due to the regulation, are having to, uh, to do the right sort of checks all the way, way through paperwork, due diligence. They're then monitoring your transactions to make sure they... Yep. They look appropriate, and these are the the parts of sort of AML. Different parts are provided by different vendors, but we've then got this this thing right. When saying isn't right, it is the obligation to submit the suspicious activity report, which is like really what most of the AML as an industry is all based on. Right, is like can we find the right things and give them to law Correct. enforcement so we've done our job. But what you've sort of got to in your answer there is. But there's all these problems in it. There's people doing it inefficiently. There's people doing it manually. Not necessarily all for, no, not necessarily because they want to do it that way, but because of brighter, hotter fires. Right. As you said, that they're trying to put out, maybe they're under-resourced. You also talked about sometimes the attitude, right, towards AML is maybe holding people back. They go, oh, we want to comply as best we can. Right. So let's let's get into the fun part of, uh, of today's discussion of, you've talked about the current state and these different bits. Why do most people say that AML is failing? They always talk about the one percent is or we one percent of illicit finance is recovered. So that means ninety-nine percent we're not doing enough on. Is it the attitude? Is it the tools? Is it the inability of people to be able to to use the technology that's there? Like where would you start? It's the I, I would say it's not any one thing that you can say is is failing. I think there are many contributing factors that influence why things the way are today. So go back to SARS. Mm. Machine learning will not work unless 
we get feedback or feedback is given from the financial investigators to say, this was a good SAR. This is a bad SAR. So unless that happens, nothing's going to improve. The, the AML industry can't improve unless we create the feedback loop between law enforcement yeah. and the private sector. If we look at how the internet was formed, if everybody's trying to establish, here's the protocol we want you to use, or here's the browser we want you to use, it would have never worked. Mm. So I think, and this is part of whatever our discussion from several months ago is banks way of taking their risk-based approach, which I think is a little bit of a myth. I think it might be misinterpreted, but I don't think the regulators ever intended to say, hey, your risk-based approach says you can measure risk differently. Well, expand, expand on that, elaborate, sort of trying to dumb it down for, for my benefit. So, so uh, I'll, I'll make it as simple as possible. Yeah. And I, you know, people that have heard me say this are probably going to be tired of it. But the idea is if I go to 10 different doctors and say, weigh, weigh me and tell me how tall I am, they should all say I'm 5'9", 195 pounds. Mm. But if I go to the bank and say how risky I am, I might get 10 different answers. Right. So if you're not measuring risk the same way across the United States and all U.S. banks, including foreign banks that are U.S. branches, everybody has a different way of measuring risk. Mm. So if you say, this is a risky person here, somebody else say, well, based on our risk model, no, it's, it's not the same. So it goes towards the benefit of an illicit actor that wants to stay hidden yeah. of divide and conquer that strategy. Okay. So- and then the whole, I mean, this is, this is common Captain Obvious comments, but if we really wanted to prevent AML syndicate crimes from occurring, you have to share data. Okay. And that's not, and I'm not saying across the globe, I'm saying if you're a U.S. branch, like banks look at themselves, well, I'm a branch of this shareholder, this, but in reality is you're protecting the U.S. banking system. Right. I know you're part of a bank, but your first obligation is to the U.S. banking system. So you would want to prevent any bad actors from accessing the U.S. banking system. So if you're a bad actor, you know, you just say, hey, you know what? I close your account. Not my problem anymore. Yeah. But they just pick up and go to some other bank that doesn't know. So, so there's two things here that you're pointing at as, you know, if I think about we're saying what's wrong with AML today, and that's the, the sort of work entitled we have for this conversation at the moment. So Number one, because we, or the, the industry has advocated this risk-based approach, but what you're saying is, but if you all have different risk models, then that means you create gaps that, that Correct. criminals can drive through or, or, or find. So what you're saying is we could make it better if we standardized the risk models. Correct. So that what you choose to do with that information, how you choose to treat your high risk versus your medium, may, there may still be space for individual differences between institutions, but the model you're saying could be more consistent or, or totally consistent. And then you're also saying that at least within country, there needs to be that data sharing, whether that's the US to US banks or UK to UK, where, where I'm obviously from or whatever country, at least then you could start to try and break up syndicates that are. Correct. Yeah, there's that idea of networks to beat networks, right? We've talked about it a few times with different people on this podcast. I think it. We'll get yeah. to my dream world, which I'm trying to work on, but I'm trying to. Let's do it now. Let's tell so, me the dream world. So the dream world is, and I'm. We'll, obviously, we'll never sell this to a, a a crime system, but you know, the criminals they probably have spreadsheets and 
their own machine learning to say, hey, this so-and-so's detection model says we know these rules. So mm. they know they have their own syndicate that they need to manage. Yeah. So I'm sure that they have a spreadsheet that says, where are all my shell companies? Yeah. Who are the people that are controlling them? Where are all those bank accounts and what jurisdictions? Which ones are active? Which ones have been closed? So if, if I could replicate a money launderer's tool, mm. then we have a much better chance of catching them. It's kind of like the, uh, the Enigma machine, right? That was, uh, they captured, the, the, there's a film, the, um, uh, yeah. what was it called? It's the Benedict Cumberbatch and he was the guy that uh, played the guy who's now on one of our, one of our five or 10 pound notes or something. Alan Turing, that's who yes. he played. And yeah, they, they basically captured an Enigma machine from the Germans in the war and it's based on true story. And then they figured out how that machine worked to then be able to build their own machine that could crack the code. And yeah. Right. And, and I'm, I'm, I haven't been well-trained in the financial investigator units, what they do, but it's my view is they're trying to replicate not only the money launderer's view, but then to look at all of the money going in and out of the syndicate. Cause I mean, you know, traditional of, you know, the layering, the placement, you know, the hiding of all this, though, that's what you're trying to replicate. So you can say, we know what you're doing. Here's evidence of it. So we can put you in jail. Yeah. Okay. So if you were starting from scratch, you would change the, that risk-based approach into a more consistent one. You, you would also have this collaboration. You would be looking at actually having people go build what you think a criminal would use in a perfect world and then reverse engineer. Yep. So that, that's sort of what, what you would do differently in terms of the design. How much of the ineffectiveness today of AML is because of the tools that practitioners have? How, how much does, yeah, the, the technologists and the data providers and the, yeah, the people that try to, to give tools, how much responsibility do they bear for the, the current state? I actually think the tools are, are fairly good. Okay. I, I think it has to do more with the data. So it becomes now, you know, we talk about <laughs> what is the specific problem you're trying to do? So it, in some regards, it's a data problem. And that's where we get to the, you know, there are in, in the Northeast, there are a lot of Carl Kemmers. My father's name's Carl. There are some criminals by Carl. You know, yes, thank you. All my friends that said, is this you? It's like, no, it's not me. <laughs> so names, unfortunately, are not unique identifiers. Yeah. In business and corporates, they're more unique because people want to be uniquely known. Mm. But in the human world, it's a data problem because you see a name in the structure of the data in a payment message. I just might say Kemmer. I might mm. say Kemmer Carl. I might say C camera. So what shows up in the data causes problems that the machines have a hard time processing. And therefore you say, Hey, I need an alert so the human can look at it. So I, I think the tools that are now present, if we were having a discussion 12 years ago or 10 years ago, it, we wouldn't even have in this discussion because everything was more based on just human involvement. Okay. And then I think the other thing is, there's a book, I think it's called Everything I Needed to Learn, I Learned in Kindergarten. Right. So people need to realize that secrecy and privacy, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. You know, the, the, the hot topic is UBOs, mm. right? There have been legislations, there's been laws put in place, and now they're weakening them, watering them down. 
Yeah, we had a had a conversation. It's not released yet, but it will be by the time this one goes out with uh, Jim Richards. And uh, yep. I tried to retain some balance, but it was pretty hard. <laughs> well, it's just it, it, it's a sad it's a sad commentary, as you know. And I I I phrase this, and again, I apologize. To people have asked this to people who are very critical of banks. I'm like, how could you not know who you're dealing with? And I'll, you make it personal and say, well, if somebody walked up to you and offered twice the value of your home, mm. but you didn't know where the money was coming from, would you take that money? If I have a $500,000 home or $200,000 home, $250,000 home, somebody says, I'll give you $500,000 for it, but I'm not going to tell you where the money's coming from. Yeah. Would you take that money? That's what banks have to face every single day. Money's coming in and out every single day. And they're supposed to detect whether it's good money or bad money. Mm. And part of the question, I'm sorry, is like, where's this, who's this, who's sending this money? Mm. Source of wealth, source of funds. Yeah. So another, another type of check that people are trying to figure out. And in terms of you, you mentioned sort of rules-based where uh, rules-based detection in the transaction monitoring systems. And then there's these the AI machine learning models that are being talked about more and more. If you think about the transaction monitoring piece, where it is more looking at numbers rather than names. Right. What do you think the future of transaction monitoring actually is? And, and does that offer some hope for AML becoming more effective? That's a tricky question because I think within the existing rails, I think it's just a matter of um, trying to structure the data and consume the data as the volumes go up mm. of just having the capacity to Again, it's going to be whether you can share your typologies with other people, whether you're going to share the incoming and outgoing volumes and values of transactions, not just looking at it as one little slice, right? Okay. But if, if you go on to the future technology, if you believe in blockchain and Bitcoin, um, I think there's tremendous benefits going to be because if you believe it, it's immutable. So that means you will always know where the money's going. Mm. And the only way that fraudsters and, and other people will be able to stay ahead is to keep moving the money. Yeah. So as soon as it stops, then people get to go, ah, we see, you know, 500 Bitcoin ended up at this address. Yeah. Let's go find out who this person is. Sure. Okay. So I think what you're saying is that regardless of the type of technology, whether it's supervised learning or unsupervised learning in the AI world, or it's just a classic rules-based transaction monitoring system, that doesn't matter so much as the dimensions of the field of play being changed. So let, let, me, let, me, let me answer a little bit of it since you mentioned unsupervised and supervised learning. Um, I think, again, it's a mindset because um, you know, regulators expect people to be able to explain things, right? So you know, when I, when I, when I way back when onboarded a client, I looked up information. I looked at client documentation. I didn't go through a process. I said, yeah, this is right. I put it in the system. Mm. You know, two years later, I said, where'd you get this information? I'm like, well, that's not the right question. The right question, is it right or is it wrong? Mm. And they said, well, it's right. I said, okay. So the end result is I'm right. They said, but you got to show us the process. I said, why do I have to show you the process? The end result is correct. Mm. So People like the transparency to understand how you arrived at a decision or how something was detected. So I think machine learning, and again, it goes back to the idea of the tools are there, the people to manage the tools. You have to be able to explain machine learning and unsupervised and supervised learning. And I don't 
the, the, the current experts in the field, they're, I would say more in my demographic okay. <laughs> than they are in my children's demographic okay. in their twenties. But the people in their twenties and thirties have a much better understanding of digital technology, all that stuff. So soft skills, we understand, we write policies, procedures. Mm. That's how we manage risk where it becomes more of a machine. Then you say, well, why is this new feature uh, in this unsupervised learning saying this is the key element to submitting the SAR. Yeah. So you say, well, I don't understand the technology and machine learning well enough to explain it. Let's go to the expert. The sure. expert explains the tool, but can't explain why. And yeah, because they don't have the the actual AML expertise and it's bridging those two. We actually had a really good conversation last year with uh, Dr. Janet Basterman and James Nurse, who talked about AI and, and its role in sort of KYC and AML, but it's, um, comes up again and again. If you're going to use it, it has to be explainable. People are not comfortable. The world is not comfortable. All the, the other stakeholders, yeah, stakeholders are not comfortable with these black boxes because I suppose what they're trying to make sure is that you might be right in your example, but do they know, were you right because you were lucky or were you right because you've got a really solid process and, and they should trust you to be right again in the future is I imagine what they're driving at. You mentioned fraud earlier. Yes. And uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because typically in a financial institution, there is an AML budget somewhere and there is a fraud budget. And the fraud budget generally to the people I speak to is larger than the AML budget because it affects the bottom line directly. Can you prove that or are you just saying that? I'm I'm repeating what I've heard. Okay. Repeating what I've heard (laughs) in general. Substantiated, right? Yeah, feel free to uh, everyone turn off the podcast because I'm wrong, but this is what I've heard. I've heard the same. And and one of the uh, the things that I I hate the acronym with a passion, but is FRAML, i.e. fraud and AML combined. Do you think there is a case to be made for fraud teams and AML teams being combined? You're, you're looking at very similar, if not the same information, right? You're looking at the transactions, you're looking at the data around the payer and the payee and the client the client in most cases and you're trying to spot bad actors or illicit activity so you can do something about it so it seems kind of odd that the two things live in silos do you think that would have a positive impact in making aml more effective if it was combined with fraud definitely yeah, expand so, <laughs> <laughs> and and so some of the things that I'm, I'm encountering now and trying to to build this money launderer's view if you will and I'll go back and separate the KYB from the KYC. Yeah. So fraud in my mind is more relevant to humans, not yeah. necessarily businesses. Okay. okay. Agree. I'm nodding my head because I'm, 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 I probably need you to go further and keep dumbing it down for me, Carl. So when yeah. we talk about new account fraud, you yeah. have humans imitating another human. Yes. Right. Got right. You. Yeah. So I don't see many companies there are shell companies that say different things. So you don't call fraud yeah, they're not in the corporate world. They're you just, call them shell companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I'm with you. And because humans access systems, and we'll just stay away from the bots, because mm. that's a different problem. A lot of the fraud that occurs is when humans try to access their financial services, or they are scammed into authorizing payments that they didn't intend to. So- the fraud is largely on the KY human side yeah. of things. Um, so separating those two departments of 
you know, KY fraud and AML, the KYC, the KYB, I think it makes sense. But if we want to look at the fraud for humans and KYC and, and fraud, there's a third component to this. And I, I've been pitching this, but no one's listening so far. But the idea is the human access to digital platforms mm. is not KYC, but it's actually authentication and authorization, which is managed by the cybersecurity team. Okay. So the cybersecurity team is trying to serve both the KYC element and as well as the fraud element. So I see the convergence of, well, fraud, it's not necessarily frammel, but if you look at trying to allow humans, not bots, but actually allow humans to engage in their transaction daily lives and prevent somebody from taking over their accounts because they, someone stole their password or they, it's all about authentication. Mm. So the idea is, I think, Fraud and AML, those operations operate and because AML divisions are set up to satisfy a regulator. I mm. think the fraud people are there to prevent fraud from happening. AML is kind of post-activity, if you will. Sure. While fraud is in that session, somebody's logging in as Carl Kemmerer. Is that actually Carl Kemmerer? Yeah, I'm with you. So there's that totally difference in setup of we're going to let, not let the thing happen. The thing's going to happen and our job is to report it. So that's all I'm going to try to do versus we know people are attacking us or trying to steal from us. And so we're going to do everything we can to prevent it from ever getting that far. Yep. But if you could take that mindset to AML, it wouldn't, I mean, that does that not speak to the attitude you spoke about right at the start? It, it does. Yeah. And, it, and you know, the, the other thing is going back to the, the other thing that has changed over the last couple of years there's a whole thing about data privacy, right? Mm. So that's another dimension that goes into here of, you know, do you really need to have my passport and my driver's license mm. just so I can open up an account or, you know, do a wire transfer to somewhere? Yeah. Like I'm human. Like, isn't that good enough? Yeah. Like, well, you're a human, but legally you don't exist. All right. I'm going to start, I'm going to create a company and become an authorized signatory. Yep. We'll, we'll do your transaction right away. Yeah, there's some some strange strange things that go on in this world, but it's uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll leave those on for another so, day. I, so fr yeah. Framel is you know, ironically, I was cleaning out um, one of home computers, and I actually saw a Salent report from 2011. Okay, twelve years, twelve years ago. Yeah, and it said the Holy Grail is when fraud and AML teams are operating as a single unit. Yeah. That yeah. was 12 years ago. And then what you're saying now, 12 years on is with cyber and, and potentially, you know, here we call it integrated risk assessment. That's like the big, big phrase, but um, we've only got a certain amount of time left. So I want to sure. go through a couple of audience questions and then maybe one big one that I have to ask. So yeah, I, I spoke to a couple of people that I know this is a podcast and mentioned that I was going to have you on and your background. Yeah. And so a couple of questions from them. The first one, a multiple choice question, which is nice. I always like those. Well, let me write is, these down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is AML held back more by A, data, B, technology, C, processes, D, regulation, or E, something else? A and 
the last one, something else, something else, so data so it, and something else. It, and I've already, I, yeah. I think people will agree data and sharing. Okay. Okay. So the, again, I, I use the analogy of like changing the field of play to make the game fundamentally different. I mean, if you can imagine a NFL field, if you suddenly changed it, so it was a hundred yards wide rather than 50 by a hundred then you've got a totally different game of much more space to play um, and more that you can do off- offensively, um, yeah. for instance. And, and I would say that the sharing goes multiple different ways. So um, business registries, mm. there, there's no data protection against corporates. Mm. They are, to me, they're almost like a public good. I might be misrepresenting. I'm not a legal person. Yeah. But the reason why you register your name and incorporate somewhere is so that you have legal existence and it's publicly known. And you get, so, uh, and you get, you know, the, the protection of being a limited company rather than doing business for yourself as a natural human person. Right. So the idea that there are certain jurisdictions, even within the U.S., the well-known states that don't even capture UBOs, like who's the owner? Yeah. And if you, if you think about it, if you are for you, a foreign person can incorporate mm. a non-U.S. citizen can incorporate a company in the United States and not say they not disclose it. it. Yeah, and now we're opening up the whole other company, uh, the, a whole another can of worms of the you know Citizens United 10, 10, 12 years ago that opened up the door for campaign finance laws. There's, I think, twenty twenty. There's fourteen billion dollars raised, mm. and a lot of it came from PACs and raising through companies. So you're saying you don't even know where this money's coming from and it's influencing the laws yeah. that are saying, Hey, this is what, these are the guardrails. And let's like, let's just take these guardrails away yeah. and just make it a wide open. So, you know, these, that I, I find KYC the most fascinating component of a bank because you get exposed to all verticals of the bank from senior management, board level, compliance, risk, legal, all the products, the back office, you have to understand the good ones have to understand everything Mm. and how it works everywhere. And the good compliance people also understand how everything works. Right. So the data sharing is across, you know, business registries, but again, going back to the financial investigators, tell the banks rather than just saying, thank you for your help. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. That's a captain obvious moment. Yeah actually give feedback on the SARS. And Jim Richards says this all the time. Yeah. Well, you, you gotta, what's good, what's bad. Yeah. And then if people start following the improvement or replicating the good, you've done a good thing. And if they don't, you can hold them to account on it and say, why, why are you submitting this stuff? And we told you these are the types we want. Yeah. And, so. and I, I also think that something else has to do with the incentives. So hmm. the way that banks are regulated today they are regulated through discipline, not reward. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that myself as an individual. So my personal view the, is you've got to have carrots as well as sticks because there's only if you just punish, punish, punish to try and get a behaviour. People eventually go, oh, I can take it, and that's why people often say, "Oh, it's cost of doing business." When they talk about fines, people might not say that publicly, but definitely get said in private. Um, you've got to have a carrot. You've got to give people like the oh, there's actually a reason I should do this and that I will be acknowledged for doing it as well as, yeah. as well as the punishment for not. Yeah. And I also think that the incentive programs, so let's take, I, many people don't know this, but have you ever heard of public benefit corporations? It's a new legal form. 
So I'm Patagonia. Not, oh, yeah? oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Patagonia the, the, the is- The fashion brand. Yeah, the fashion yeah, brand, yeah. right? Um, if you're on a trading desk and you have a vest, yeah. you know you can't put your bank's name on a Patagonia vest. But anyway, so they are very transparent with how they govern themselves and their societal goals and all this. So they don't get rewarded for their good behavior. Mm. So if they're treated just like any other MSB. This might be riskier. Some, you know, I'm not, I shouldn't, I shouldn't identify other industries, but more risky industries that they're treated the same exact way. There's, there's no incentive for somebody to be a public benefit corporation. Right. None. Yeah. Interesting. And, and I'll also go back to the other part. We have the data and what incentives are put in place. I, I think if people in the ecosystem really want to prevent and limit financial crime, the money that is captured for those fines should actually go towards programs and platforms and technology that will actually prevent financial crime. Mm. Because very few people ask, oh, I think I read something that said something since 2008, $326 billion of fines have been collected. So nobody's asked where that money went. Yeah. So the idea is, hey, you know what? Your government is, your regulators are collecting money and FinCEN only has a budget of what, $220 million? I think people could spend five minutes and realize in the US the the amount of fines that have collected in the last year was well north of $220 million. Yeah. So the incentive to improve things, it, if you just can't speak to it. You actually have to back it up with okay. with actual actions. So there's a, a cultural element you've definitely struck at throughout this conversation, plus a redesigning of the incentives and the the guardrails, as you call them, or the field of players, I've called it. Second audience question was, I suppose this is maybe more of like a case study example rather than sort of some sure. of the higher level concepts, but they wanted to know, have you ever seen, you had a long career in AML, have you ever seen a technical solution just provide a real meaningful uplift in the effectiveness for AML and can talk about the product. You don't have to just talk about a product, but the second part of that question was what made it so impactful? I don't know if there's an example that jumps to your head, but I quite like the question because it's kind of from a hopeful place that, you know, somebody, there are maybe projects people could take on that will have a big impact rather than just constantly just chipping away at half percenters all the time. So when we talk about technology, um, I'm talking about a data technology. Okay. Yeah. So um, recent conversations, again, I apologize to people that have heard this. In real estate, you hear, what's the most important thing about a real estate? Location, location, location. Yeah. In a data world, the most important thing is a unique identifier. Right. So I'm sure your company has a unique identifier for certain of your products that you want embedded as many banks as possible. So while it's just a regulatory requirement now for certain derivatives, I think, you know, the LEI, the Glyph Foundation, what they come up with, I think that's going to have um, a, a very in, big impact. I think it started out with, because uh, we, we, we implemented it to say, hey, this is for your protection. Go get a LEI. Well, how much does that cost? 250 bucks. Yeah. Right. And then you're like, okay, now you need to, now you need to register or self-serve, go pay 500 bucks to, to become a certain swap dealer or a large corporate, yeah. you know, to satisfy Dodd-Frank. 
So someone would be out like 1200 bucks and you say, I didn't even trade with you yet. And you're saying this is for my protection. So I think the LEI is a unique identifier. It's going to help the technology with, you know, that's the data point. Um, And the APIs obviously is the, is is the biggest, the biggest one. It's not so much bringing in a solution, but you think these fundamental sort of offerings that could be used by various vendors or various home built solutions in terms of inside institutions using these the right way and using the technology of APIs is and will continue to to make a big difference. Correct. Because to make your machine learning, your advanced analytics all work, you need to have clean data. Mm-hmm. And clean data data is the the more a unique identifier can be used to say this is unique, the the quicker and faster your machines and your APIs are going to be able to process data. Yep. And all of it is designed to help a human make a fully in, a better, fully informed decision mm. quicker. Yeah. Full stop. I'm not looking for machines to make to replace me at all. Yeah. Right. But I would certainly like what would take me. I mean, before the internet, people that went to a library, they wrote down, like, all right, this book is in this section. And they went and spent five hours just finding the books even before reading them. Yeah. Right. So it's the same idea as like an IP address. So where in the KYC AML world is the equivalent of IP address? Mm. Okay. So it will help process information, organize information a whole lot cleaner in the future. So the, the, the technology with APIs and processing data, making it cleaner and unique, yeah. I think those are the technologies that as a foundational element, if, if you start managing that, you're going to be ahead of a lot of people going forward. Very interesting. I have one final question, which is from, from me. I can't blame an audience member for, for this one. So uh, tell me if it's a stupid question, but we've talked a lot about culture and the importance of the sort of attitude towards AML compliance. Typically what I see is that your BSA officer or, or chief compliance officer, MLRO, if you're, you're not in the US, it's the more commonly used acronym. Yep. Um, they will do board reports, right? Like they will come and notify, but their, their reporting line, their boss is normally the CEO or sometimes it's the CFO or COO, some, someone else in the C-suite whose incentives are generally, you know, growth focused or cost reduction focused um, in terms of margin. But what I wondered is should the BSA officer or MLRO, should they actually be reporting directly to perhaps the chairman of the board who's got like that step removal and is actually managing the other executives, should they like bypass the executive management team and their reporting line should be directly in there so that if things aren't being done correctly, like they're not being heeded and we always talk about compliance having a seat at the table, but if their advice is not being heeded, then in theory, the enforcement agencies could actually go after the board members and say, well, you were given the information because we know that this person or this person's team reports directly to you. And would that change the game in some way? Would the tone suddenly change? Would it be, we're going to be world-class at this rather than just do enough? And then you get all the cascading good effects, hopefully, of that change in tone. So the, um, it's a very, it's not a stupid question. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic question. And I, I think I want to put it against and compare it to the credit officer. Okay. So Moody's. Hmm. Most people don't know this, but I'll, I'll challenge you. How long has Moody's existed? 
50 mm. years, 100 years? So over 100. I Correct. would say 120, I think. 123. So John, John Moody, I looked this up, I think it was nine, early 1900s. There's a so book upstairs, which is the original. It, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you think about where we are, so the formal AML KYC industry really is just only 20 years old. Okay. And so credit risk has been embedded and it is embedded in all aspects of banking. Yeah. So right now, the only reason why KYC AML exists is because of what happened right here, right? Yeah. Really. I mean, I'll, I'll just be honest. So 9-11 was the, the, the milestone event that said, we need to take this more seriously. Yeah. So, but it was a negative event that drove it, not, not, a, not a positive one. Mm. So I think as the KYC AML fraud um, becomes more and more embedded across all aspects of banking, I think that compliance person's position will change. Okay. Right. And the reason I say that, again, we didn't get to the topic, but the, the idea of if I was to change something, people view compliance as a cost. Mm. And, you know, I was always like KYC people was like, we pay you a lot of money camera. I'm like, yeah, you do. I said, do you want to do my job? They're like, no. <laughs> like, okay, well then you're going to pay me. So yeah. that's fine. But it's, there are only reasons to cost because it's not embedded in any banking products. Yeah. So please tell me what banking product incorporates compliance risk, AML risk. Credit risk is there. Mm. Yeah. FX currency risk is reflected in the price, but everybody just sees it's as a cost. Mm. So the first line of defense just sees it as a cost. So it's, again, it's a cultural mindset, but if you make it a price, not a low, medium, or high. Mm. Oh, I got to do these things. I ask these questions. Then you incentivize the whole organization because compliance is just not the responsibility of compliance. It's everybody, right? And the good people, there are many, many good people in the front office that understand it and they use it to their advantage. Hey, John, you call up a company. It's like, hey, I, I want to see something's going on with your company. I just wanted to get an understanding. How can I help you? Yeah. Yeah. Or the bad ones say, yeah, I got my compliance people busting me. I, I need to ask you these questions. I don't care what you say. Just tell me the answers. Yeah. I'm exaggerating for effect, but the idea is as that position is elevated into becoming all part of the financial institution, it's just not in banking as well. Yeah. I right. Agree. And I think I people are starting to realize if, if you're, if you're doing, if you're not in banking, you still want to know who you're doing business with. hundred percent. We talked about supply chain earlier today with, uh, couple of guests just uh, before we did this one this afternoon. So I get the sense we could talk about many other topics we or, could. <laughs> or, and we could go many tangents, but we'll have to maybe leave that for a future trip I do of appreciate mine. It. But um, we always like to finish with some recommended resources from guests who often know far more than me or always know far well, more than I don't know me. if I know more than you. But uh, in terms of recommended reading or other types of content. Is there anything that you use or maybe you yourself have created that you'd like to point people to that might want to dig a bit more into different ways of doing AML or how we can improve the industry? Again, I'll give you a non-traditional answer. So first of all, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. I always, always listen to your podcast. I find <laughs> very it very kind. informative. Um, everybody gives excellent comments. Um, so if anybody wants to reach out, obviously, I'm on LinkedIn. You can reach out there. Yeah. Um, what we're doing. So I work at Nice Actimize as a senior product manager. 
you're building what we view as a standardized way of measuring risk yeah. to start with. Um, it's different because it's all in the cloud. Okay. So again, I'm not legacy. I'm trying to build something for 2025, not something for 2015. Mm. So I'm building for the future and we're building for the future. In terms of what to read, I would encourage people um, to read outside of your discipline, to look at problems, look, look for similar problems, but how other industries or other even technologies look to solve a similar problem. So 10 years ago, I, I, I never heard of digital identity. I never heard of Web3. And now I think banks have an opportunity to be, if they're in the verification business, well, guess what? There's a whole cottage industry doing verifiable, verifiable credentials. Yeah. I think that's called Twitter <laughs> and Meta. They're, they're getting people to pay to verify who they are. Well, that's what banks do every single day. Yeah. But they only do it for their clients. But the opportunity is, hey, I have a whole business here. People want to be verified. I'll do that for you. Yeah, yeah. So how do we enable our compliance teams to verify people's identities? Oh, well. So that's look, look for solutions outside of your own blinders, right? I know you have a day job, but I would encourage you to read outside of solutions that typically you wouldn't read. Yeah. Well, food for thought and saying to ponder for everyone. Uh, Carl, thanks so much for coming in and, and making the time and being patient with me to get my travel schedule arranged. So uh, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Alex. So there's a lot potentially wrong in AML in Carl's opinion, but there is hope that new technology, new attitudes and new approaches can make a real difference in making AML more effective across the board. Should the risk-based approach be standardised or does it need to be individual to the institution? That's something I'm going to have to really think more on, but I would welcome others who have ideas on this to give me their input, particularly if you feel strongly either way. Actually hearing those outside perspectives is one of the best parts of my actual day job, so don't be shy. Thank you for listening, and a big thank you again to Carl for coming on and to producers Caroline Waters, Shem Pennant and Mark Rundle. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.